This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. Today we're going to look at elements of Ray Bradbury's writing that might be unusual or possibly unique. I'll be talking to Geoffrey Cahan, who has written a number of articles about Ray's writings and who last year edited a journal issue devoted to Bradbury and horror fiction. In an earlier episode of Bradbury 100, I talked to Jason Orkerman and John Eller, two of the people who are keeping Ray Bradbury's legacy alive at the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis. The Bradbury Centre, you may recall, is an archive which holds Ray's working papers and professional artefacts. And it's also something of a museum which offers tours of the collections. Well, another thing that the Bradbury Centre does is publish a journal, the new Ray Bradbury Review. There's usually one issue published per year, although the combined effects of the Bradbury centennial and the COVID-19 pandemic have meant that there hasn't been the time or opportunity to produce an issue this year. Past issues of the journal have focused on various aspects of Bradbury's work. For instance, I edited an issue which was devoted to the 1966 film version of Fahrenheit 451 in celebration of its 50th anniversary. The most recent issue deals with horror and supernatural fiction and was guest edited by Geoffrey Cahan, a writer and academic who is actually best known for his work on Shakespeare. As editor, Jeff was able to pull together essays tackling issues such as how we classify works of fiction into different genres and how this tendency of ours is problematic when it comes to a writer like Bradbury, who so easily slips and slides between genres. But that same issue of the journal also looks at how Ray's work on radio and television influenced listeners and viewers, and it reminds us of something Stephen King said. Stephen King said he was powerfully influenced at a young age by hearing a radio adaptation of Bradbury's story Mars is Heaven. Although it was presented within a science fiction series, Dimension X, and it looks and sounds for all the world like a work of science fiction, the effect of Mars is Heaven is the effect of a horror story. In his book Dance Macabre, Stephen King calls this his first experience with real horror. He was four years old at the time, by the way. He goes on to say, I didn't sleep in my bed that night. That night I slept in the doorway, where the real and rational light of the bathroom bulb could shine on my face. If you've no idea why the apparently science fictional story Mars is Heaven should be considered a horror story, well, you probably need to go and read it now. You'll find it in Bradbury's book The Martian Chronicles, where it goes under the alternative title The Third Expedition. Other articles in that journal issue look at Ray's use of language, his novel Death is a Lonely Business, 
a work which you might call a detective story, if it weren't such a weird tale, and his classic Elliot family, which we've talked about previously on the podcast. The new Ray Bradbury Review is classed as an academic journal, so you might think that it's aimed squarely at other academics and highbrows, but most issues have clearly written articles that any reader of Bradbury would find interesting. I'll put some links in the show notes if you're interested. Anyway, the specific case of Mars is Heaven is a fine example of the problem critics have always shown with Bradbury. They want to categorise him. As Jeff Kahan writes, they relegate him to one genre, science fiction, and marginalise him in the other genres, like detective fiction and horror. Meanwhile, readers delight in Bradbury's breadth, his scope, his unpredictability. Bradbury isn't a this writer or a that writer. He's just a Ray Bradbury writer. What makes Geoffrey Cahan's view interesting to me is that he provides almost an outsider's look at Bradbury. Although he loves Bradbury and knows his work well, he approaches the work with the wisdom of a Shakespearean scholar. But he's also a lot of fun to talk to and listen to. So let's get on then with this week's guest, Geoffrey Cahan. Joining me today is educator and scholar Geoffrey Cahan. Geoffrey has written many books on Shakespeare, including one called Shakespeare and Superheroes, and he has also written a number of articles on Ray Bradbury. Jeff, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet you on the radio. My first question has to be, for you, what connects William Shakespeare and Ray Bradbury? Well, like all really good questions, that's really complicated. So, like, there's the professional answer and the personal answer. The personal answer would be that when I was a kid, one of the first books that I really connected to visually, just the cover, was that old Bantam edition of the illustrated man with the blood red soaked background. And it was in my father's drawer, you know, next to his bed. I was very, very young. And I didn't actually read it. I would stare at that cover and it just terrified me. And, you know, when I was about 12, I started reading science fiction and a lot of Ray Bradbury, a lot of Asimov, a lot of Clark. You know, you you go through the ABCs, right? Then you meet Philip K. Dick and you're ruined for life. You know, then you, you get a little older and like many people who read, you want to become a writer and you start doing all these pastiches dealing with your influences. And I wrote like a lot of H.P. Lovecraft pastiches. And then later in life, this is now like high school, I would go through the library and I came across this colossal collection of hardback books in the reference section called Contemporary Authors. I don't know if you remember them, but they're huge, huge volumes, zillions of them. And if you go through them, they had the addresses of all these writers. So I picked out a couple of my favorites and I wrote to them. So I wrote to Ramsey Campbell, I wrote to Robert Block, and I wrote to Ray Bradbury. And they all wrote me back, which is amazing. I was like 
you know, 15. So I started this correspondence with my mind, some of the geniuses of the 20th century. Ray Bradbury wrote me and he encouraged me to write stories. So I put together this little collection, terrible, terrible stuff. I was like 16 years old, self-published it. And I sent him a copy and he wrote me back this beautiful, elegant little note saying how much he enjoyed it and that he was far superior to his future Fantasia that he had done when he was a kid, which was a total lie because his writing is a thousand times better than anything that I could ever pull off. And then I went to college and I became an English major. And then, you know, quite rapidly, they move you from those sort of generalist classes to these specialized classes. And you get a very detailed reading of one particular writer and, and sort of teaches you to silo literature, separate specializations, I guess. And then, like, even worse, because you're covering so much literary terrain, you start reading more about literature than reading literature itself. Uh, You know, you're an academic, so you know, I'm sure that a lot of this is clicking with you. Instead of reading Shakespeare, you start reading about Shakespeare. Instead of reading Paradise Lost, you start reading about Paradise Lost. So that, in a sense, you're never really reading... Paradise Lost, you're reading Stanley Fish's Surprised by Sin, right? Or you're not really reading Shakespeare, you're reading William Hazlitt's view of Shakespeare or A.C. Bradley's view of Shakespeare or more contemporaneously Stephen Greenblatt's view of Shakespeare. And that's all awesome, awesome stuff. But you sort of lose the direct contact with the literary magic that you wanted to invest in to begin with. After many, many years of writing about Shakespeare and doing archival work and so forth, I was totally burnt out. And I needed a way of actually reading literature that would re-enchant the word for me. Through Facebook, I'm pals with a lady named Terry Burris, who was a professor at Indiana. She's no longer there. And she put me in contact with John Eller. And we sort of chatted a handful of times. And I started reading Ray Bradbury again after a hiatus of like 40 years. And wow, it's all there. And even better than that... Bradbury has been a kind of corrective to 40 years of academic engagement because uh, he sort of uh, proves that um, I've been wasting my time. Because if you read a story like, which he wrote when he was very young, a story like The Square Pegs, right? He wrote it in 1948. It really encapsulates everything that's wrong with academia, right? So it's this story about this lady her name's Catherine she's a nut job they're all nut jobs in the story and they're all going to be exiled and isolated on their own asteroids of madness and this is exactly what we do in literature right we end up on our own little asteroids talking virtually to nobody she even in the story as I recall I haven't read it in a long time but in the stories I recall she makes reference to Othello's planet 
this is exactly what Shakespeareans do. I mean, we even have this grandiose term, Shakespeareans. But of course, she's nuts. They're all nuts in that story. And it seems to me the much more natural and rational, sane way to read literature is much closer or akin to what Bradbury does, for example, in a story like Usher 2. He takes all his literary references and instead of siloing them, he just lets them engage with each other and he creates this thing. If you think about like Poe walking down the beach and he, he looks at Shakespeare's characters and he says, uh, it's a regular sea of people. Well, first of all, there's nothing regular about that sea. Nothing. And then also it strikes me that it's a very unpoesque thing to say, a regular sea. That doesn't sound like Poe. You know, like a Poe, I imagine, would say something like... Uh, the solitudinous sea, the lonely sea, the dark sea, the falling sea, something like that. So I think what we're really getting there is Bradbury ventriloquizing through Poe, talking to Shakespeare on a Martian beach. Like it's all, it's all mixed up. And that's the beauty of it, that literature, and I think Bradbury is like the perfect example of this, he reimagines reality, but he makes it into something finer, something uh, gossamer, maybe. It, it's beautiful, and it's fragile, and it's very poetic, but it's not isolated. It's always engaged with the real thing, if you follow. I think that's, that's a really fascinating perspective. I mean, I've been very conscious that Bradbury will throw in maybe a Shakespeare quotation or, or, or something else from literature. And of course, Fahrenheit 451 is full of quotations, but he'll also throw in quotations from commercials and he'll name products, uh, you know, chocolate bars um, by name. So there's this strange mixture of aspiring to high culture, but also throwing in popular culture as well. And I've always seen those as being quite mixed together, but I've, I've never seen it in quite the way that you've described. Well, I think we're really talking about the same thing, right? So this is the way I think of writing it, and, and it's just me personally. So I think you have to be kind of dissatisfied with reality. And so you take these words, these symbols of reality, and you construct a new reality out of them. And you learn to do that by looking at how other people did the same thing. So that the more you engage with the word, the more realities there are reconstructed within it, right? But at the same time, it seems to me that Bradbury is different than that because he doesn't seem to be dissatisfied with the world. Poe is a miserable bastard, you can tell. Lovecraft, not the life of a party. But Bradbury, he's just, like, happy. And he makes us happy when we read him. Not because people don't die in his stories, because they often do in quite horrible and grisly ways sometimes. But there's this magic in the story that makes you look at reality, even away from the page. You look at the reality and you say, huh, so that's how he sees it. That's really awesome. And you want to re-engage in it so you become slowly addicted to that literary magic that he creates and, and he's awesome at it a lot of the things that Bradbury does are strange to me he violates almost 
all the rules that we're taught when we're kids, especially like, or even in college, if you take like a creative writing class, right? So what's the first rule of writing is show, don't tell. But if you look at somebody like Beatty or Spender in, um, uh, what's that story? Uh, and the moon's so bright. I love that story. You get the exact opposite. Beatty doesn't show us how the world became like it was. He just, he just tells you, oh, this is what happened. A, B, C, D, three, right? One, two, three, four, five. And now we can get on with it. And Spender does the same thing. He's walking around. Spender, where have you been? Oh, well, let me tell you. There's no showing. He just tells you. And then we move on to something quite different. But it isn't plot. It's more like a vision. It's like a poetry. Like the, it's, it's the language that obsesses Bradbury, it seems to me. Not necessarily the plot. Now, it is true that in a story or in a, a novel, like Something Wicked This Way Comes, that's a beautiful, elegantly constructed plot. But for the most part, it seems to me that Bradbury is not truly interested in the unraveling of plot, the careful plotting of plot. He does something quite different to me, at any rate. And it strikes me as something more akin to poetry than it does to, to prose. Did you ever read his definition of, of what plot is? I don't know. I've read those two books of essays on writing that have been published, but remind me. I think it's in one of those somewhere. He basically says that he drops his characters down in a situation, lets them run around, and wherever they go, that's the plot. <laughs> it's not a framework that steers the characters. It's, it's just seeing where they go, and then that is whatever happens is the plot. But it is interesting to imagine, as he imagines, characters as independent agents, and he is merely a chronicler. Like he's as surprised as they are by what they do. There is a, a kind of a mysticism there, as in, again, the Usher stories on Mars, where there is a, um, a moment where it seems like these characters are, are ghosts and we are merely listening in on their thoughts. It's a pretty majestic way, I think, of looking at literature. It's not escapist. It's something else. It's, it's a way of lensing reality or bringing meaning into reality. I've seen some people refer to his stories as, as meditations. Yeah, I mean, he's, in terms of you know, horror fiction, for example, he's way closer to Clark Ashton Smith than he is to Lovecraft. Like Lovecraft is really a, well, I won't say really a, but he's a lot of a whodunit or how done it, or what done it, right? And then the horror. But Clark Ashton Smith is much more like uh, floaty images and, you know, just those kinds of hippie drug-induced visions, right? I suppose the closest that Bradbury gets to quote-unquote traditional literature would be somebody like Fitzgerald, who also has that kind of magical quality to his prose. But, you know, it's sort of Fitzgerald without all the gin and the addiction and the selfishness. And it's a much 
gentler, more beautiful version of reality. It's special. I, I think that's probably why, you know, he retains the following that he does. You guest edited a recent issue of the new Ray Bradbury Review, uh, which is published by the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. What can you tell us about that issue? Well, I wanted to explore aspects of Ray that I think have been underplayed. And again, it goes back to this idea of siloing. And in fact, in your first podcast in this series, you talked about something very similar, that we sort of silo Bradbury as just a science fiction writer, whereas, you know, his, I don't know that these definitions would mean much to him. As you were intimating, he sort of does what he does and then lets everyone else catalog it in the thereafter. There are a significant amount of horror stories, and I wanted to explore that aspect of Bradbury, and I was lucky enough that you guys were interested in it. And I really came at it um, as a huge fan of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Bloch. And as you know, Bloch and Bradbury had a, well, a relationship. They were friends. And they're both consummate masters of the horror story. But at the same time, there's something quite childlike, magical about his stories. They're not fright fests. They're not gore fests. They explore something almost, I guess, Twainian in the sense that it's a reinvestment in a reenchantment of childhood. At least for me personally, reading them as an adult... I'm re-engaged with the magic of what it was to be a kid. Now, it would be interesting, actually, to get a kid's perspective on how they interact with the stories while they're still children. But at least for me, going back to those stories, it, it really kind of put me in contact with the magic of Halloween, right? Just the whole narcissistic thing of getting your costume and going door to door and eating all the candy and pumpkins and the the candles and the stories and all of that stuff you know one of the things that Bradbury does in those horror stories it seems to me is he makes you feel like you didn't waste your childhood on all the minutiae I'm thinking here of like um, Batman 66 I'm sure that you watched the old Adam West show right what a waste of time and yet how not Looking back on it, aren't those some of the fondest memories you have of your childhood? And yet, what a waste of time. Like, you should have been studying. You should have been practicing, playing whatever sport it was that you were doing at the time. But no, you were like eating chocolate bars or eating cereal, uh, you know, lying on your stomach in front of the TV watching Batman 66. And it's, in fact, not a waste of time. That is the most important stuff of your childhood somehow. It isn't the huge stuff. It's the kind of junky stuff. Like in, um, uh, I'm just mixing and matching here, but in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy, where Quill and the rest of them, they start having this long conversation about Footloose. And you go like, what a waste of time. It's not even a good song. And yet in the future, 200 years in the future, or whatever it is, there they are talking about Footloose. And, and I'm not saying that Bradbury is a total waste of time, quite the opposite. But I'm saying that a lot of the subject matter that, that he engages in, 
the magic that we recall that he really makes quite special is the waste of time stuff. So he makes those, those moments quite special to me personally, anyway. You chose the horror angle for that issue of the journal. Was there any particular reason for going for that? Was it because you thought it hadn't been covered previously? Well, I have to say that I'm not an expert in Ray Bradbury criticism by any means, so I frankly didn't even know if it had been covered. So I was much more interested in just what I was interested in. And I really didn't know if the issue would come off because you create this thing, as you know, called a CFP, a call for papers, and you put it out on the UPenn website, as everyone does, and it's a very specialist website. Unless you're an academic, you're not even going to know that it exists. And you don't know what you're going to get. You might get a couple of emails of inquiry, but you really don't know if you're going to get any solicitations. And even if you did, you don't know if they're going to be any good. So it's really a kind of crapshoot. I got lucky. At the very last second, I started getting these essays. And what was nice about the essays is that they all covered different stories and there was no overlap whatsoever, that they were academics from different phases of their careers. There were a lot of young academics, early academics, but also some experienced hands as well. And, and a lot of the essays were very, very good, very strong. So they required very little input on my part. And, but also it allowed me to think about what I wanted to write about. So, you know, I wrote about um, Halloween Tree, and it was a story that I'd never really thought about writing about until I saw, oh, there's nothing on Halloween Tree here. So I'll, I'll write on that. And I love that story now. It's really, it's really one of my favorite stories. Fantastic little story. And it's got these elegant pictures. And it's great. There was a film as well, I believe, right? Yeah. Bradbury wrote the screenplay for it. Yeah, it's magical as well. And the reaction to the essays, I've received a couple of reactions. They've been extremely positive. And it was so nice. It was so nice to get away from Shakespeare and get away from the archival investigation of Shakespeare, the weight of Shakespearean criticism. And, you know, one of the things about Bradbury is that you can still engage in what we used to call or still call, but very few people refer to it anymore, as new criticism. An engagement with the text as text, lensing through your other readings. I've read the Iliad. I've read Bray Bradbury. When my mind connects one with the other, unlike more modern forms of criticism, I don't say, no, 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 don't do that. I just let the mind go where the mind goes. The associations themselves are the basis of the practice. Ray Bradbury allows me to say different things in different ways than other forms of literature, for example, Shakespeare. That kind of naive reading of a text or an innocent reading of it, I'm mostly involved with film. So the equivalent for me is watching a film for the first time. And as you say, once you've read about what people have written on the film, it forever changes your perception of it. But there's something about that innocent, naive first reading or first viewing yeah and that was what was so nice you know you i went back to bradbury after 40 years and yeah i had this critical baggage of knowledge of how to disassemble 
the apparatus. But at the same time, because you're, you, it's an entirely different field, a lot of the tools don't work. And that's what's so great, that suddenly you're thrust back into the text itself rather than into your toolbox to look at the text itself, right? It's been really inspiring to actually read for pleasure again. I really owe Ray Bradbury a huge debt of gratitude just on that basic aesthetic level. For the first time really in years, I've enjoyed reading just because I'm reading. Are you going to be doing any more writing on Bradbury? Well, I hope to. Right now, I'm finishing a new book. As you intimated, I wrote a book a, a little while ago on Shakespeare and superheroes, but I also have this subspecialty where I've written three books on comic books. So uh, my publisher, McFarlane, asked for an update for Cape Crusaders 101, and the last one came out 10 years ago. So I started this update, but the world in comic books has changed so much that, in fact, I ended up writing an entirely new book, and that will be submitted hopefully by the end of the month to the publisher. And then I'm 100% on Bradbury. I mean, I love this guy and I'm going to write about him. And I don't know what will happen to those essays. Maybe a publisher will be interested in them. I'm just going to write for the sheer pleasure of writing, just as I'm reading for the sheer pleasure of reading. And hopefully that will stay the case for some time to come. Good, good, good. You mentioned earlier on the first time you discovered Bradbury, but you were talking then about a book that you didn't necessarily read. You, you saw the cover and it was sort of hidden away, The Illustrated Man. Can you remember the first piece of Bradbury that you actually read? Can you remember the story? I don't know if it was a story. I think my first uh, engagement with Bradbury as a full story was probably like a Twilight Zone or something like that. But I'm thinking of the, the televised version of the Martian Chronicles. I think they were on NBC TV. And I remember Spender walking down that canyon saying, I am the last Martian. And that freaked me out. That was one of the seminal moments, I think, of my childhood. I remember that like it was yesterday. And then I read the Martian Chronicles and uh, Fahrenheit 451. And, but I can't say that I became uh, obsessed with Bradbury in the same way that I later became uh, obsessed with even writers like Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, actually, I think I'm reading more Bradbury than I did as a kid. And what I do is I got that giant collection, 100 Best Short Stories, and I read one every day. And they're not long. Some of them are two, three pages. Some of them are, I don't know, 20 pages. It's been a kind of daily meditation for me. Do you use Bradbury in any of your teaching? I do teach a class on graphic novels. There's a lot of discussion about various forms of quote-unquote pop fiction. We have the opportunity to branch off and talk about sci-fi and fantasy and Game of Thrones and all that stuff. But it's my hope that given, you know, time, that I'll have that opportunity to teach something like a class on Ray Bradbury and other science fiction writers. I certainly do not or would not intend to silo Bradbury off. That seems to me to defeat the entire purpose of reading somebody like him. 
I think that when you read Ray Bradbury, you're in a sense reading an entire history of literature. Okay, everything that he's read isn't disguised. It's just put on the table for your enjoyment. Uh, you know, he obviously uses the library a lot in his stories, but like reading him makes you want to run to the library or Kindle and sort of hunt down a lot of the books and authors that influenced him. You reassemble his literary experiences as a way of further engaging with the author. So there's this very complex conversation that we're all having with him, it seems to me. Mm. That was interesting about Fahrenheit 451. You will read a quotation in there, and sometimes it's signposted where it's from, sometimes it isn't. So you find yourself wanting to put the book down and go and do a Google search and find where this has come from. And I found a similar thing when I did a new Ray Bradbury review about the film of Fahrenheit 451. Lots of people who sent in proposals for papers were wanting to talk about the books that were seen burning in the film. So there's this this fascination with what are the things that are being quoted and what could be the meaning, what could be the hidden meaning of each. And of course, some of them are just random, but some of them are not. Yeah, there's a kind of um, unraveling there of what it means to be an author, right? That author and editor or anthologist is somehow all combined. In fact, in the Renaissance, actor, author, and editor, they all have virtually the same meaning. So like Bradbury is anthologizing his literary thoughts as an author, and, and as a reader, we're intuiting the way those processes are, are both replicating themselves, right? We're reading Bradbury both as an author, but also as a kind of literary scholar of his own experiences. He's read clearly more than the books that he's citing or authors that he's citing. So this is his collection, right? He's anthologizing his literary experiences as literary creations. That's a beautiful way of looking at literature, right? Instead of writing criticism, you write stories about the works that you, like I should write a book in which Ray Bradbury is a character, in which Ray Bradbury is writing, Ray Bradbury's stories, so that I can understand how Ray Bradbury thinks about Edgar Allan Poe. Like it all becomes very complicated. And yet I think that's exactly what he's doing. How do you think other scholars see Bradbury then? I mean, taking American literature broadly or English literature uh, as broadly as we can, do you think he is or will be remembered as a science fiction writer only? Or is there a broader recognition of what he does? Well, he's not a science fiction writer. He's just not. Isaac Asimov is a science fiction writer. Arthur C. Clarke is a science fiction writer. Philip K. Dick is not a science fiction writer. Ursula Le Guin is not a science fiction writer. And Ray Bradbury is not a science fiction writer. Right? The latter uh, authors that I've listed there, they're interested more in the psychology of character rather than the gizmos. There are so many Ray Bradbury stories that famously take place on Mars. But we're not interested in the minutia of the science of how you get to Mars and all that stuff. In fact, quite the opposite, right? The signposts of science fiction, being on another planet, etc., 
these are merely stages upon which Bradbury is creating something quite different than like a Ben Bova author. As much as I like Ben Bova, I mean, it's very science fiction, right? He wants you to understand the nuts and bolts of how you can actually get to another planet and survive on it. You know way more about Ray Bradbury as a human being than I could, and I, so I would never rival your, your knowledge on it, but I don't know what kind of uh, actual science background, test tubes and, and physics and stuff background that he had, but, but I'd wager that he knows way more about fine whiskey than he does about quantum mechanics, right? It's not in the stories, and it doesn't seem to me to be important to the stories. In fact, I think it's been a huge detriment in a way because, let's face it, we associate a lot of the elements of science fiction with masculinity, with science, and we tend to think of that genre as a sort of subgenre to traditional fiction. In fact, I think one of the things that's very surprising about Bradbury is, you know, he gets published in Harper's Magazine and Astonishing Tales, maybe in the same month. Like, that's a pretty amazing thing. Like, you could never imagine Isaac Asimov being published in Harper's Bazaar and Astonishing Tales and, I, I don't know, Saturday Evening Review or something like that. He seems to have been able to transcend a lot of these specialist genres. He, he doesn't strike me as a science fiction author at all. How do you feel about it? I appreciate what you say about certain authors not being as science fictional as others. To me, something like Fahrenheit 451 is science fiction. Uh, it's just not interested in the science, but it is using a science fiction premise in order to tell an interesting story. And to me, that's what science fiction is. It's the premise more than anything else. Well, so we're not saying science. We're saying speculative fiction, as yeah. Harlan Ellison embraces the term, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, science fiction is a horrible label. It, it, it should never have been called that. It should always have been called something else like speculative fiction, but... Whatever we choose to call it, the label X that we put on the thing, I think right. it has a broader definition than the, the sort of the nuts and bolts aspect. The problem there for me, even with a term like speculative fiction, which is a far more functional term, is that all fiction is speculative. So now we're into a whole other thing. But it seems to me that the way he's using science fiction or the, the trappings of science fiction is really a, as a kind of fantasy element. He's, he's creating a theater of the mind in which things happen. But the science of it, or it, even the names, the trappings, are irrelevant. Like, it could be Mars, it could be Venus, it could be Dimension X, it could be anything. But for whatever reason, because of the culture that he grew up in and we live in, He's invested in Mars, as we all are. I mean, we're still fascinated by Mars. There are like three expeditions going to Mars this year alone, right? Not human expeditions, but you follow. So we're still fascinated by this stuff. And we get that the science of why we're interested in Mars has way more to do than just the science of going to Mars. It, there's something mystical, elemental about that planet, the way it interacts in our imagination. And that's what he's grappled onto, but I don't think that 
he's interested in science in the same way that, for example, Gene Roddenberry was interested in science, that the whole wagon train to the universe Star Trek thing, I don't think would appeal to Ray Bradbury for the same reasons. I think that there's something much more profound and psychological going on in Bradbury's mind or in the writings as I interpret them. I'll just say one more thing about science fiction, and that is, to me, Moby Dick is science fiction (laughs) because it shows an immensely detailed understanding of the biology of the whale and then uses that to build the platform for a story to be told on. It's setting out a stage, you know. It's uh, biological fiction. Yeah. (laughs) Well, biology is a science. (laughs) Right. No, 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 no. But it's a subgenre of science fiction. It's biological fiction. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Now I'm going to go to my silly question, which is the desert island question. You're marooned on a desert island, but you're allowed to have one item of Bradbury to keep you company. What are you going to choose? It's one item of Bradbury or within Bradbury? Um, Either. Well, I guess it'd be that cool TV room in the Velt, right? (laughs) Then you could have it all. Absolutely. (laughs) So you'd be on your desert island, but you could go in there and not be on a desert island anymore. Yeah, and I think that within my my Velt room, my my TV room, I'd probably be playing Bradbury (laughs) stories. You could play the vault on the walls. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier on, I think, that you're also a podcaster. And I know you have a, a new podcast called Mentors and Role Models at the moment. So what can you tell us about that? What that is about is really the pandemic. I teach this class on graphic novels. And as one of the weekly assignments, the students have to go out and do something heroic, not risk their lives, but improve the world in some way, expand their community. So no family, no friends involved. You've got to go out and actually deal with the world and make the world a better place in some small way, and then tell us about it. Well, obviously, with COVID uh, and social contact and distancing and so forth, you can't really do that. So I modified the assignment to they have to go out and speak to people, again, not direct family or best friends or something like that, but really engage with a stranger or a contemporary and find out who were their role models. So contact your old teacher. Find out what makes them tick. How did they become who they are? What significance did they have or play upon your life, etc.? Once I came up with that, that seemed a a pretty reasonable solution to the problem of COVID in terms of that assignment. But then I said, well, I can't really ask them to do it without me doing it either. So I started, I just went through the old Facebook list, right? And just started contacting people. And they've all been really interesting. I found out a lot of things about these people that I had no clue whatsoever Everybody's got a story. And that's why I would like to take this opportunity to invite you onto my podcast to find out about your early influences and what makes you tick and how you became who you are. Because look at those books behind you on that bookshelf that I'm looking at on this screen. I mean, it's a very impressive setup you've got there. And of course, we both have extremely privileged lives. And we have to recognize, as John Dunn said, no man is an island. And 
we all had help along the way. It's just an opportunity for us to recognize that fact of life and to offer some thanks. That's a fascinating idea. There. And, and the people that you were speaking to in the episodes that have gone out, they are people that you already knew, but you didn't know this much about them. Yeah, I mean, actually, there are three students. One I haven't spoken to uh, in 17 years. Another one I, I sort of know socially a little bit, maybe met him two or three times over the last 10 years, that sort of thing. But I really don't know these people. And look, I know my neighbor, but I really don't know my neighbor. I mean, I don't know what makes him tick. You know, everyone's got a story, and uh, I think people are even surprised by their own story even as they tell it, if that makes any sense. I'm sure that you get emails from time to time from former students who'll say, you had a huge, profound effect on me. Thank you so much. And you'll read these emails and you'll say, who was this person? I have zero memory of this person. And yet, we had this huge influence. So we're never really aware of our full impact upon the world. And this podcast has just offered me an opportunity to do that. And it's been massively successful. I have... Wait for it. 50, 50, five zero downloads. Wow. So, yeah. So, hey, I mean, world changing, right? Everything starts somewhere. And who knows where it'll go or maybe it'll go nowhere. And that'll be okay, too. One thing uh -huh. that I like very much, it begins with the phone ringing. And it's, yeah. it's kind of got a built-in suspense because you're wondering well, who's going to pick up. <laughs> who's the on the other end, right? <laughs> So that's very good. Yeah, well, that was just, uh, I couldn't afford any bumper music. And I, I frankly wouldn't even know how to add it. So I like your intro music, though. It's, it's quite good, isn't it? I had to audition about 300 pieces before I found one that I thought that's the one. Finally, if our listeners would like to find out more about your work, where's a good place for them to look? Well, you could just type my name, Jeffrey Kahan, K-A-H-A-N, into, say, an Amazon browser, and all my books will pop up. They're all ridiculously expensive, but you can get them through your local library. Or you could find me on Facebook, or you could check out the podcast, Mentors and Role Models. It's always gratifying to, to hear from people and to find out if you know, in some small way, what I'm doing is of interest to them and how we could interact together. It's a big world. And I think that, um, especially for academics, but even more so during a pandemic, I think we're all finding new ways to connect with each other. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very grateful that you invited me. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. I was going to end by saying thank you for joining me today. <laughs> oh, well, you can still do that. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. My thanks once again to Jeffrey Cahan for joining me today. Jeff is also a podcaster himself with his Mentors and Role Models podcast. I'll put a link to it as well as links to the new Ray Bradbury Review Journal on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And my thanks to you too for listening to the show. Next week, Bradbury 100 just happens to drop on that most Bradbury-esque of days, Halloween. So I will be joined by a man who has been called the King of Horror, the Emmy-winning actor 
Bill Oberst Jr. Please join me. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.